Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is August the 14th, um, just afternoon here. Do you know what event occurred this day tomorrow? I do not. No, no reason why you would. I may, if we had a previous recording on, on August the 15th, I probably would have brought it up, but it is India's Independence Day. Yeah, I think you do this every year. I should write this <laughs> down on my calendar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah. But I digress. What are uh, what are we talking about this week? So August feels like the start of the school year. The school that I taught at for many years, their first day was actually today. So it's always, always like, now that I'm not teaching there this year, I'm like, ah, a lot of feelings, Ricky. But uh, anyway, uh, we are going to talk education a little bit. And to do that, we are going to be joined by Kira Butler, who is a writer and a senior editor for Mother Jones, which I would imagine many of our listeners are aware of the publication, but it's a nonprofit uh, American, it's a progressive like magazine that does news and politics and human rights and and environment and and culture. And uh, it's been around, I think since 1976. So uh, it's a pretty famous and important publication and Kira has been writing for them for over a decade now. So we're thrilled that she, and we'll get into this more when she comes on, she has transitioned her focus a little bit in her writing into the education space over the last year, as it's become more of a hot button issue, a little bit more politicized. And she'll talk about all of that when she comes on. But I thought, I think it really is going to be a fascinating conversation and, and timely for all the people who either are headed back to school themselves as students or teachers or have children going to schools or even for the people that are concerned, as I think everyone should be about the state of education in our country. Yeah, definitely. And especially as we approach November and sort of that one year countdown um, for the 2024 elections, I think she's got a lot of great insights on a topic that is either going to be front and center or kind of in the undercurrent, but I think one that will have uh, an impact either way. Absolutely. So thrilled to have Kira join us. Before we bring her on, a quick reminder to everyone that the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen at Cannon Hill Woodworking. They've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two ends. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Ricky, in the spirit of the episode, what is a tree's favorite subject in school oh you're getting me every time with these i think a couple of listeners might out there be able to get this one geometry Ooh, that's a good one but like i mean trigonometry works too doesn't it Sure, maybe they just like math, Ricky. <laughs> <laughs> well, you didn't guess anything, so yeah, you, yeah. Got, you got no credit for that. <laughs> uh, all right, uh, with a little bit more elevated education talk, let's bring on gear.
All right, we are now very excited to welcome Kira Butler on to the podcast. Kira is a senior editor at Mother Jones. She is also an author. She wrote the book, Raise What 4-H Teaches 7 Million Kids and How Its Lessons Could Change Food and Farming Forever. For a long time for Mother Jones, she wrote about the environment, nutrition, health, agriculture. Uh, she had an award-winning column called Econundrums. I think I'm saying that right. Uh, but recently, Kira, you have come to my attention because you've been doing a lot of writing around education and like that, the school space and we Ricky and I figured now that it's August and some schools are starting up others are especially in the south are in session and um, others up here north are, are, are gearing up to get started we figured this is a great episode to talk about some of the education issues that are forefront of a lot of like the the political and social debate right now so Kira thank you so much for joining us thanks so much for having me so my, my first question is really along those lines you as I mentioned, your focus was very much, it seemed to be like environmental health, nutrition stuff for a long time. But then your recent writing has been very focused on education. And I'm curious how you made that or what drove you to make that choice to pivot and focus more on like the education space over the last year or so? Yeah, uh, education has always been an interest of mine. But I would say the progression that sort of got me here had to do with COVID. Um, during the beginning of the pandemic, um, I was kind of acting as our de facto public health editor and reporter. And I began to get interested in some of the um, politicization and disinformation around COVID. And that led me to um, culture wars that were happening around schools at that time that had to do with um, critical race theory, um, and also the the ongoing um, controversies around uh, curriculum and books. Um, you know, most most of those controversies have to do with LGBTQ themes. Um, and going from there into education and the politics around that was a very natural transition. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that's really interesting because one of the articles that I wanted to talk about was you attended the first ever Moms for Liberty conference almost a year ago, I believe. And Moms for Liberty, for people out there that don't know, is a group of conservative women who say that, or if, if you ask them, they, they would claim that they are about liberty and parental rights and making sure that parents have the ability to, you know, to choose for their children in education and that their rights aren't being taken away by the government. Uh, they, they describe themselves like joyful warriors, but they came into being in 2021, largely in, a, in response to COVID as well. And I think so much of this renewed interest in education as a political topic comes from COVID, whether it was the masking things or from parents sitting at home and listening to the education that their children were getting. And so you just mentioned that you you have a daughter. What was, what was that experience like for you? The the experience of being a parent during COVID? Right. I have, I, so my kids are now four and seven. At the beginning of COVID, like in March 2020, they were four and one. And uh, my husband and I were trying to, you know, like, you know, many, many, many parents all over the world were trying to work our full-time jobs from home while our kids were home. 
And it was an incredibly stressful and destabilizing time. So I guess that makes Ricky and I are not parents, but certainly I, I, I was teaching during that time. And we certainly, you know, whether we have our own plenty of friends who, who are going through these situations, that rings true what you say. Uh, so I, I guess in some ways, you must empathize with parents who now have like this renewed interest in like what what's going on in their child's schools. Absolutely. You know, I think um, the word that I keep coming back to about that time, that 2020 to 2021 is destabilizing mm-hmm. um, and uh, anxiety provoking. And, you know, I think that uh, people on different different places on the political spectrum dealt with those feelings of helplessness um, and lack of control over the safety of their families in different ways. Um, so, you you know, you saw people on the right kind of mobilizing against mask mandates, mm-hmm. saying the government can't tell us um, to, you know, have our kids wear masks to school. And um, you saw people kind of in the center, kind of, and, you know, from both sides, uh, really calling out the fact that um, Zoom school was not great for a lot of kids. Um, and you saw people um, on the left uh, being really worried about um their kids getting sick with COVID. You know, that's an oversimplification. There was so much more going on than that, but that's sort of the basic contours. Sure. And what we've seen in coming out of COVID in these these last couple of years is that the ones on the right have really mobilized in a way that parents in the center or left haven't seemed to do as much. And so this group, Moms for Liberty, is one of several conservative groups out there with focusing on education but they've become perhaps the most famous and most influential. And so what brought you to their conference a year ago? So this was a group that um, I I was hearing based on some reporting that I had done around um, schools that were fighting against mask mandates. I was hearing from um, people in various parts of the country that their school boards were starting to look different. And that uh, school board meetings, which used to be really sleepy affairs, you know, maybe have a dozen people talking about whether or not to build a new gymnasium. Um, These were all of a sudden drawing hundreds of people. And uh, there were, Moms for Liberty was one group, but there were a few other kind of conservative parents Mm -hmm. groups uh, that were really mobilizing people to come to these meetings. And then um, as the pandemic wore on, um, Moms for Liberty has emerged as kind of a leader in trying to change um, kind of the profile of these school boards um, and flip them in some cases from majority Democrat to majority Republican. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And I decided to go to this conference. Uh, what did you sort of take away from the conference in terms of like where most of the conference goers' heads were. I think a lot of the times in in media, you know, the the sensational quotes are the ones that get out. But obviously, as you sort of alluded to, there there's kind of a bit of a spectrum of people who were drawn to this group, whether it was for mass mandates or uh, education curriculum around critical race theory. Where did you feel like the sort of the concentration of that, of the conference was? Yeah, it's interesting. It was different. So I went last year and then I went again this year. The first year it was in Florida, this year it was in Philadelphia. And um, the attendees were kind of different last year versus this year. 
last year in Florida, there were a lot of Floridians um, and they seemed, uh, the ones that I talked to at least seemed um, to be very concerned with mask mandates at that time. That was also, you know, just the time that it was, it was 2022, this year was 2023. This year, I have to say that I talked to a lot of people at the Moms for Liberty conference who were not moms. Um, there were, and who were not even dads. Um, there were people who were there, you know, because uh, five of the Republican presidential candidates were speaking there. Um, it was clear that this year, this conference had moved beyond the realm of um, of parents into, it, you know, it sort of felt like CPAC Jr. to me a little bit. Well, it's it's a credit to them in a lot of ways to come up so quickly to be founded two years ago. And now you have, and I want to get into this a little bit more. Originally you had governor DeSantis speaking at the first one and he was kind of the keynote speaker there. But this year, as you, as you just pointed out, we have five major presidential candidates coming to this conference to speak. And it, it tells you that they've become a group with some heft. The, the headline of that story of your return to the Moms for Liberty was my deeply unsettling return to, to the conference. I don't know. That might not be, have been your headline per se, but what about it potentially maybe made it unsettling for you? So I wanted to just back up and address something that you said um, before asking me that question, which was just, you know, the idea that uh, the conference had, had kind of a bigger profile this year. And I wanted to mention the fact that uh, if you hear uh, the founders of Moms for Liberty, that's uh, two Florida women named um, Tiffany Justice and Tina Deskovich. If you hear them tell the story of the founding of Moms for Liberty, they were just, you know, two moms and they met at a school event and, you know, they started this group and it, it grew and it was all grassroots. Um, but I think it's important to also point out that this is a group that has some friends in high places. They The conferences were both years. Um, they were sponsored by Leadership Institute, which is a kind of a conservative training, training, you know, people who conservatives who want to run for office. Um, and they, they've been around for a while. They're very, you know, they, they have a lot of resources um, and Heritage Foundation, which, of course, is the kind of arch conservative think tank. Um, you know, they, uh, Bridget Ziegler was kind of a third founder of Moms for Liberty, and her, hus her husband is Christian Ziegler, who's the head of the Florida um, Republican Party. Um, these are, you know, well-connected people. So, it, you know, I think uh, it's a little disingenuous when they try to paint a picture of a, a grassroots organization. Um, but to get to your, your actual question, um, which was why was it unsettling? Um, I think, you know, there were many reasons that I found it unsettling, but one that I can kind of tell a, a pithy story about um, is the fact that so a few weeks before the conference happened, um, a Moms for Liberty chapter head, I think in Indiana, had quoted Hitler in a newsletter. And at the beginning of the conference, I was kind of talking to people trying to get their take on quoting Hitler, you know, the chapter had it apologized, you know, people who I talked to seemed to say like, yeah, you know, I kind of see where she was going with that. Like she was trying to compare the left to Hitler, but it's never okay to quote Hitler. But by the end of the conference, uh, in both the breakout sessions and in the keynotes, I, I began to see a shift to the speaker's 
kind of embracing the Hitler gaffe and saying, you know, you want to quote Hitler, you should quote Hitler. Um, You know, just this sort of, uh, you know, it was almost like it was a safe space for these Moms for Liberty members. And they really wanted to affirm each other um, in these extreme choices that some of them had made. Mm -hmm. I I think one of the things that sort of in this in this vein, one of the things that you had brought up, and I'm I'm apologies, not sure if it was in the first article you wrote or in this follow up, was the idea that this is not uh, not really unique in terms of the way that sort of speaking to corrupting the youth or this fear around corrupting youth is a is is sort of a good foundation for some kind of political movement or to get people interested and invested. Um, I, you know, I, I think a little bit about some of the, like the stop the ERA type of things that were happening in the sixties and seventies. And then, you know, you had a litany of examples as well. I wonder how kind of you think about this in sort of the, like taking that thousand foot view of how, why a, this is like a great moment for a resurgence of this kind of thinking and why it's getting so much traction now and how you sort of view it in the context of other historical events that sort of have a similar thread. Yeah, you know, I think um, our historical memory tends to be kind of short. Um, and I recently uh, was on a great panel and a, a co-panelist was a historian who kind of studies these, um, she studies sort of the um parents parents rights movement throughout the years and you know she uh reminded me that um the time when uh schools were attempting to desegregate was another kind of flashpoint where you saw parents um become very fearful about you know societal change and what was this going to mean for their kids um Another interesting time that I think is a good parallel to look at was in the 80s, like when I was a little kid, um, there was the satanic panic, which was the fear that daycares were full of pedophiles or full of devil worshipers or something. And really, you know, when you when you looked at it, um, it, a lot of it was about, you know, the idea that women were more women were going back to work and that, you know, they needed childcare and you know, women were, women in particular, I think, had a lot of anxiety and mixed feelings about, you know, what was, what was happening to their kids while they were back at the office. Um, So, you know, I think there is, there is historical precedent for this. And like, you know, like I was saying, the pandemic is, was another incredibly destabilizing time. And you sort of, you know, you put that on top of, um, a societal conditions for women that are uh that are are hard to deal with that are in some ways you know oppressive um you know women have trouble finding affordable child care women still get paid less than men women have their health concerns dismissed by doctors a lot um so it doesn't it kind of makes sense that you know that that uh women and moms in particular 
would find uh, a powerful sense of identity in this parents' rights movement, this movement that promises them the opportunity to take control of their, their family's well-being. How in that sense do you feel about the sort of the future of this particular like moment or movement? Um, I think, you know, part of what you spoke about is how within a year, it's obviously grown in political stature, but it's also in some ways been co-opted or is now something different than maybe where it started. And as you noted, you know, the primary conference goer may have been a mom in 2020. Too, but this year was, you know, it may be 50-50 and split with more people interested in the in the broader sort of, you know, right-leaning conservative politics. How does that sort of portend for uh, the way that this movement wants to be able to elevate political candidates? Is it going to get caught up in sort of, you know, kind of the far-right ideology and, and make it less appealing to people who are just like, you know, I'm interested in this because I want my kids to go back to school. That's not the concern anymore. I'm less interested in, in what's going on. Yeah, it's um, it's really that's the big question, right? Is that is this like a flash in the pan? Has Moms for Liberty peaked? Um, was this year's conference kind of the biggest they're ever going to get? Um, you know, I think uh, the parents' rights movement has had a good year and a half or so, like uh. In Virginia, Youngkin um, was propelled to victory in large part because of these um, self-proclaimed mama bears. Um, you know, you if you look at the Moms for Liberty website, they claim that they have put forth in the last, like since they started in 2021, they've put forth like 500 school board candidates and more than half of those have won their races. So that's impressive, right? But um, yeah, you know, like you were saying, like this, you know, we're kind of in a post pandemic era where, you know, we're, we're kind of back to normal life and you can kind of see Moms for Liberty casting around for the next big thing. Like recently, they've been, they've really been harping on um, the science of reading. You know, there's been really interesting stuff has come out about um, how we teach reading in America and, you know, that how the teachers unions and um, progressive uh, education movements have kind of failed in teaching American kids to read. And so Moms for Liberty is pointing at that now as kind of a, a failure of progressives um, in, uh, in in education. So I think they're trying to make that um, a new talking point. We'll see. I don't know. Well, that does sort of tie in because like you wrote about in the first conference, the article, the first conference you attended that while their rallying cry is like parental rights, they don't necessarily mean like all rights or everyone's rights. It's a very particular set of rights. And largely you can, it, it dovetails nicely with the, the Trump DeSantis anti-woke agenda here, say, and then you can tie it in with not only are they teaching all our, our kids all about you know transgender people and LGBTQ stuff, they're doing that in place of these these reading things that seem to work, you know. That's and in fact, that's what they're doing. They're saying your kids class time is being taken up by, you know, lessons about, you know, the many different genders or whatever, instead of, uh, you know, learning phonics, learning ABCs, learning one, two, threes. Right. And so kind of going off Ricky's question, though, you wrote about 
I think it was a man that you met at the second conference and he's, you described him as like an erstwhile liberal who said that like, I never seem to be in, into stuff like this, but I came to the conference and I really like what I'm hearing. Like, I actually think that they're, they're finally speaking the truth about what's going on. And I, I do think we've seen just on take it outside of education. We've seen like a, across the country, a very broad movement of like, finally, these are the people that are telling me the truth. So what, what did, what, what did you take away? You didn't really analyze that as much in the article, you kind of left us with that picture of this man. But as you thought about that, as you left the conference, what did, what did he, what are people like that make you think? I mean, so he was interesting because I think that a lot of his uh, change of political heart had to do with COVID. So he was kind of saying, well, you know, that like the liberals were wrong about the vaccines. They didn't prevent transmission. And you know, they were wrong about masks, too. And, you know, we now we're hearing masks don't really work. And, you know, in terms of the vaccines not preventing transmission, like, yeah, like, he has a point there. Totally. Um, unfortunately, it's like hindsight is twenty twenty on that stuff. And, you know, it the vaccines did work to prevent transmission in the first, um, like the original COVID. Um, and, you know, now we know more about masks because it's three years later. And, I, you know, I, I saw a kind of, um, in him, I saw this kind of like, you know, emperor's new clothes, like he, he sort of thought that he had, he maybe, you know, the people who had claimed to be telling the truth, but that nobody believed at first actually turned out to be right in the end. And that is a very kind of compelling thing too, or yeah. way of thinking to a lot of people, I think. Well, but I think that's where, depending on what side you on, you could be like, this is why Moms for Liberty and those type of groups are so, they're at the vanguard of what's really going on in schools. Or you could be like, this is why they're so dangerous. Right. And, you know, going forward, um, whether, you know, people are going to um, continue to be interested in what Moms for Liberty has to say, you know, absent of destabilizing pandemic, I, you know, I think that really remains to be seen. And whether or not, you know, the like I was talking to a kind of a, an interesting center right thinker, I don't know if you know about him, his name is Robert Pondicio. Um, and uh, he is, I want to say he's with he is with a, a think tank and I'm I'm not even going to try to remember which one right now but it's like a center right think mm-hmm. tank um and he was like and he actually wrote a piece about this too but I was talking to him at the conference and and he said you know he takes moms for liberty seriously um probably more seriously than I do but um he thinks that their liability is like you know the Hitler quoters and that like there's this guy James Lindsay who they have um talk all the time at Moms for Liberty stuff who's thinks that like you know social emotional learning lessons in schools are a Marxist plot and makes all of these comparisons to like you know the cultural revolution in China like he's just really out there um he thinks like Klaus Schwab is behind everything um like sort of shades of Q um, not quite Q but like you know, kind of going in that direction. And like this guy, Robert Pondicio, um, 
thinks that people like that are a real liability for Moms for Liberty and that, you know, the average parent is not going to really buy into that. Well, that seems like a fair concern. I think we've <laughs> talked, Ricky and I have talked to uh, Dan Fishman, who was the former head of the National Libertarian Party, and he's kind of pointed that out too. He's like, if you have a party, like it is vulnerable to like extremists when like, even if you do have a solid platform or solid message, if you're going to be open to people who are out far, in, these, in this case, far right, it could taint the whole organization going forward. Uh, so as I mentioned earlier, DeSantis was kind of like the conquering hero. And I think in a lot of ways, this is where... DeSantis made his national platform and probably encouraged him to run coming out of COVID. And so much of what he was saying was focused on, on schools and parental rights. It seemed in some ways like he and uh, Moms for Liberty came up almost together. But now I know like politics isn't necessarily like your main focus in writing about these subjects. But what ha- what have you observed over the past year or so in kind of in seeing DeSantis's rise and plateau and maybe a little bit decline compared to where Moms for Liberty continues to seemingly rise in stature? Uh, So DeSantis and Trump spoke at this year's conference, and it was so clear that not only was Trump the headliner, but that he was the main draw of the entire conference. Mm -hmm. The Trump merch was, I mean, it just was out of control. The Moms for Liberty were wearing like bejeweled brooches and, you know, Trump flat flying Trump flags. And it just, I mean, the level of um, enthusiasm for Trump just completely um, blew away any other candidate or any other speaker that was there. Um, And, you know, who's to say if Trump had been at the previous year's conference, maybe we would have seen the same thing. But at that time, it seemed like even though Moms for Liberty, like DeSantis hadn't even announced at that point yet. And Moms for Liberty wasn't going to endorse anybody anyway. But I kind of feel like over the past year, like between last year's conference and this year's conference, they've become more Team Trump. And I just wrote about this um, charter school impresario in Florida, Erica Donalds, and she was kind of a golden child of DeSantis. And she's also very involved with Moms for Liberty. She sits on their board. Um, And she had done campaign events for DeSantis before. um, But she has publicly endorsed Trump. It seems like, you know, she has hitched her star to Trump's wagon because she sees him as well, I um, I do think, you know, some people just like to pick a winner. Yeah, that, that seems fair. I was going to ask you kind of what, why you thought that might be the case. But I mean, that makes a lot of sense. If you want to continue to elevate the platform of the group, you, you want to have the best chance of doing so on a national level. And at this point, certainly, it seems like former President Trump is is that guy. So I know you just wrote that article. It just was published last week. So this woman, Erica Donalds, she is the wife of Byron Donalds, who some people might know is a uh, congressman from Florida, has been a, a huge Trump supporter, a Trump surrogate in a lot of ways over the past few years. But this article, and again, we are a long way from this happening. President Trump would have to win the Republican nomination, then he would have to win the general election, then he would have to appoint a secretary of education. But we know that he appointed Betsy DeVos uh, previously, and there was a lot of controversy around her selection as the secretary of education. You hypothesize in this article that Erica Donalds might be a, a strong candidate for that position. Can you just talk a little bit more about like 
who she is and why for some people it might be quite concerning to have her in a position of power and in a Trump administration? Sure. Yeah. So she came on my radar. I mean, I guess I've known about her for a little while, but I decided that I had to write about her when um, at the Moms for Liberty Summit, when Trump in his speech was just lavishing praise on her. And I thought this is worth looking at. Um, So because she's, you know, she's not that famous. Um, Her husband is more famous, but still not that that famous. I don't know. So she uh, started out as um, a school board member in Collier County, Florida. That's in Southwest Florida. Um, and then while she was on that school board, she um, she was, as a conservative, she was in the minority on that school board. And this was in like 2014 to 2018 was when she served. So this was before uh, like the, you know, um, Moms for Libertyization of school boards. But um, she made she founded like a coalition of conservative school board members in Florida, which was where she met some of the um, founders of Moms for Liberty. So they they go way back. Um, And since then, to make a very long story, like a 4000 word story short, um, she has gotten involved with uh, charter schools that are run by Hillsdale College, which is a um, conservative Christian college um, that runs these classical academies that focus a lot on um, the Western canon and, you know, kind of the classical um, liberal arts and kind of the the original meaning of, you know, the phrase liberal arts. Um, and uh, so she has a, a company and a foundation. The foundation raises money for these uh, academies and her company, um, manages them and she's been kind of cashing in on these charter schools in Florida and all the while she's been kind of ascending the ranks of Florida politics. She served on a bunch of committees, some of which she was appointed to by DeSantis. Um and she has become very prominent in the Florida education space. Yeah, and I know you know this, but to clarify, she's running essentially there are like public charter schools, which are like not for profit charter schools, and then there are for profit charter schools. And as far as I can tell, she's running more of the latter. That's correct. I mean, she her foundation is not for profit, but she has a company. Um, it's called Optima, and that is a for profit company. Um, and through that company, she's also uh, she's running a virtual reality charter school, not to be confused with like a, a remote charter school. This is like Oculus headset kind of a, a charter school and she's selling virtual reality experiences to other schools and school districts. Well, you could see why president Trump would be interested in, in aligning with someone like her. Uh, but it's interesting. And this is where it's, it's somewhat frustrating for me because some of these issues like school choice, I think are, are really great issues and are winning issues. Like, like you alluded to in Virginia and, and having parents more involved and giving parents more choice over where their children go to school, but then you take it and it's packaged as this this potentially really good idea and depending on who's selling that idea and who's putting that idea into place then that's where you can really run into some extreme issues yeah absolutely i mean so much has been written about charter schools and i think you know it's interesting because charter schools started out as a progressive movement um the whole idea of school choice you know that the idea that everybody deserves a, a wonderful education and that you know some people don't have that in their local public school. And along the way, you know, they're, they're companies that are making a lot of money off of charter schools. And, you know, it became 
um, in some cases about about profit. Right. That, that's what's so frustrating to me. One, one other education related article that we did want to touch on was the you wrote about gun violence back in April. And this was in the wake of the Nashville school shooting. And Ricky and I, unfortunately, over the past three years of this podcast, have had too many occasions to talk about this issue. And largely, you can expand upon this if you want. Like the thesis of your issue was that in when some of these more terrible tragedies are in the news progressives are always about gun control like this is we we need to the lawmakers need to get their their heads around we need to do a better job with gun control and conservatives are much more about like in addition to thoughts and prayers like strengthening schools so we can make the schools like physically safer and progressives oftentimes push back on some of these things like we all grew up with fire drills but i know like the generation before us grew up with like nuclear bomb drills because like that was a possibility. And now schools have active shooter drills. And, uh, but a lot of progressives will push back and say like, well, that actually does more mental harm for kids than potential good that it does or metal detectors. And conservatives say like, let's make sure we have metal detectors in schools because that would prevent guns from coming to schools. Progressives would say that what happens, where do we put those metal detectors often in like low income or minority schools. And so there's like genuine debates about this. So what drove you to write the article and then what were some of like the conclusions that you had uh, having talked to a lot of people and done some research on this? Yeah, I, you know, I don't, gun violence and especially school gun violence is not something that I cover. And the reason for that is that it's too upsetting. Um, as a, as a parent, I just, it's something that I've really, I've stayed away from, but you know, every once in a while, um, I don't know, even the topics that are that are so hard to write about, um, you just feel like you have to say something or do something, you know, because you feel helpless. Again, it, you know, it goes back to this feeling of being a parent and feeling helpless. Um, so I was interested in the, the politicization of lockdown drills and of active shooter drills. And um, I wanted to know whether... Um, whether progressives were right in saying that we, you know, gun control is the only answer. And I think I especially was just feeling like it was feeling untenable. You know, gun control is something that I, I, you know, as a journalist, I try not to like, you know, express too many strong opinions, but I, I strongly, I'm fine saying that I strongly believe in gun control. And I, you know, I think that would be wonderful if we could get um, automatic, semi-automatic weapons um, out of the hands of um, people whose hands they shouldn't be in. But it seemed like really hopeless. Um, Americans seem far too attached to their guns. Um, and I, I think it was that feeling of, of hopelessness that led me to wonder, you know, is there anything that else that we can do to prevent violence in schools? And when I started talking to researchers and looking at the research, um, it became pretty clear to me that uh, active there, there are ways to do active shooter drills that are traumatizing and bad. There's apparently there have been schools that have done like the whole nine yards, like fake blood, like actors, just um, in a way that that seems like over the top. Um, And you can see how a kid would be traumatized. Um, On the other hand, lockdown drills uh, that, you know, show kids 
that there is a plan to be safe if there's a, a dangerous person. Um, are they are they upsetting to some kids? Depending on the kid's age, probably. Is that level of being upset worth the preparation? Probably. Most of the researchers that I talked to were telling me. And another question that I had was, were the kids upset or was it the parents who were upset? And I get it. Like I, you know, as a parent, I don't, I don't want my kid to have to deal with the idea that somebody's going to come with a gun into school and start shooting. Like that's incredibly upsetting, but you know, my feelings aside, do I want my kid to be prepared? Yes. Um, some of the research uh, that was suggesting that lockdown drills as opposed to active shooter drills were um, traumatizing kids uh, had to do with um, like the, the methodology behind the studies had to do with uh, looking at social media from communities and um, looking at different words that came up. And I, I can't remember right now, I, I don't have the article in front of me, but it's kind of like uh, making what seemed to me and what seemed to some of the researchers that I talked to, to be kind of um, a leap from like, you know, you have an active shooter drill and then you look at the tweets that people in this community are making and they say things about being sad, not necessarily about the active shooter drill, but just, you know, higher um, higher rates of certain words that suggest mental distress. Um, I think that kind of research is still sort of in its infancy. Um, and there's some questions about how reliable that is to draw conclusions about, you know, people's mental reaction, people's emotional and psychological reactions to um, these kinds of drills. Yeah. I, I, I love kind of the premise of the article, which was like, let's set aside that maybe all progressives can kind of agree that gun control is probably going to be the most effective solution to, to, to doing this at a broad scale. But knowing that the political system is the way that it is, if that is not possible, like how can we evaluate some of these other options? I wonder if like in the course of reporting this, are, you know, are some of the findings surprising? Because I think, you know, you had really been able to bring out that the kind of the progressive thinking on, on mass, maybe not at the individual level, was that okay, well, a lot of the things that are being proposed by Republicans are either they don't work or they're doing more harm than good. And it seems like, you know, you were able to find a few of examples where that that just wasn't true. I'm curious if that was something that you expected to find and how, you know, does that change any of your opinion or how you think about, um, or, uh, yeah, I guess how you think about this issue and what needs to be done moving forward? So, just to be clear, you're talking about kind of uh, things that um, people on the like center right people ended up being right about and how yeah, that I mean, I, I guess it's not to say that like their solutions would would actually get us to the outcome that we would all hope for, which is, you know, basically eradicating this specific issue in schools. But the idea that kind of the, or at least the publications that I read into tend to want to push a narrative that says that like, you know, the gun control is the only answer and all these other things are either waste of time, waste of money, or actually are making things worse. Like, did it feel like you uncovered something that, 
hey, yeah, I still think that gun control is the the best solution, but that doesn't mean we should not look at these other ones. Yeah, I mean, and I, you know, I hope that as a journalist that I'm I'm able to evaluate um, evidence, you know, rather than, um, you know, evidence rather than political, politicized, I don't know, I'm, I'm not sure what I'm trying to say. I guess I, I hope that as a journalist, I can look at evidence instead of being persuaded by, you know, prevailing political sentiment in the circles that I run in. Um, but, you know, I, the response that I got to that piece was interesting, you know, that I, I got, um, I had some tweets from, you know, predictable, you know, people saying like, this is misguided. And um, then I heard from other people, you know, saying, thank you for, you know, for this, uh, this was new. And that's, that's also something, you know, especially at a publication like Mother Jones, you never want to be like, so Mother Jones, you know? So whenever I, I hear this, this was new, this was something I didn't expect, you know, I, I that usually is a good indication that um, maybe I've done my job. I don't know. No, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And so we're, we're going to let you go soon. But do you think you're going to stay in this space in terms of like keeping an eye on like education and school related issues in the near future? I, I really want to. Yeah, the stories that I, I'm thinking about now that I, I have on my radar um, are all in the in the education space. I, I seem to always come back to anti-vaxxers. And actually, I was interested in them but even before, the like years before the pandemic, I was writing about anti-vaxxers. Um, and I'm, somehow I'm always coming back to them. So I'm, I'm sure I'll keep writing about them, too. Renewed but. relevance today. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and Kira, if people want to follow you, where might they be able to do that? Um, well, I'm at Mother Jones, um, of course. I'm on still on Twitter. Um at X. Kira, at, Kira, at X, right? <laughs> yeah. Um Kira Eve Butler. And then I'm also on I'm trying to be on threads, but I'm finding it very hard. And I think I'm I can't even remember my threads handle right now. So Maybe I'll just leave though. Yeah, that one out. Fair enough, but you can go go if if you're interested in any of the articles we mentioned, or Kira has been writing for Mother Jones for years at this point. So you can go go back and look through many of her her stories and go find her book on on probably your local bookstore, but also on those like online like Amazon and places too. Uh, so, uh, but that's all we have, and and thank you so much, Kira. We, we greatly appreciate your time and perspective here. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This was a fun conversation. No, you're, that was great. I think. Yeah, welcome I, back anytime. Thank you. Yeah. So thank you again to Kira for her time. And like, as I said, her perspective, it's, we continue to feel very lucky when people like her join us and such a fabulous reporter. And I do hope that people out there, if you were interested in any of the stories that we mentioned, go, go check out her writing because as she said, she was condensing theses and hypotheses into uh, recordable bits, but these were very long, very well-researched stories that I, I went back to a couple times in 
preparation to, for talking to her. And even her story had originally caught my eye and went back and read it a few times. It's really, really interesting. Makes you think. So Ricky, what, what were some of your takeaways in, in hearing her perspective on these educational issues? Yeah, I think that, that little bit that you uh, just mentioned definitely stood out to me. I'm always impressed by people who can so quickly and succinctly put together their thoughts with like a beginning, middle and end, because obviously not something that we're always the the best at. But um, maybe I could just start where she ended. I think that the piece on gun violence, I, I feel like it's very hard to find journalism that clearly has not not necessarily a bias, but they have like an, an intended audience and to sort of to 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 do exactly as she said kind of look at and try and put apart any uh subjective feelings that she has about it and to think about all right well let's examine these different claims and and really see what data there is to either support or refute um their their kind of merit and i think you know i'd like to think that that's really a bit of what we try to do here um and i i think that article if you're if you're kind of interested in moving beyond the the stalemate around gun violence and like, what can we do today to, to get some things moved forward to make schools safer? Um, I think it's a really interesting article and it, it really does help think about, all right, what are the, what are the investments that are worth something and what are the ones that we should leave aside? And if, if most of the suggestions are coming from the right, presumably we could, you know, go, immediately to put these forward, right? Because that's typically where the resistance comes from on these issues. But I think what she alluded to is that not necessarily that there are uh, in in the same way that you can find someone who says that, you know, more guns make people safer and not have much evidence to claim that you could, you can find someone who says that school shooter drills traumatize children and don't save lives. And and, you know, do, what does the evidence say? I think the article does a great job of that. So I, I wanted to start there. But, uh, but you know, what uh, what were some of your takeaways? Yeah, I'll build off that to start because we've, we talk about a lot of these like huge issues and some of them we've alluded to seem are seemingly intractable. But then when you and I talk, and again, we do this in a very little space and Akira is speaking to a large audience, but she's doing this investigation and, and collecting this evidence and talking to the to the researchers and, and analyzing the, the data. And what she comes out to is like, all right, yeah, this is one solution, one big, bold letters, gun control, right? Like that would be her solution. But in lieu of that, and you kind of asked this, I thought really nicely, like, we can do two through 10 to potentially make our schools safer. And I think that's what you and I often come back to when we talk about whatever it might be like voting rights or, uh, you know, how like black Americans are treated or the, the budget or all of, all of these huge issues that just seem like, how, where do we even start? And then you're like, oh, well, if I drill down into some of these, there are actual things that like, I think we could probably get accomplished. And Ricky, this is sad, but I caught myself the other day thinking like, wow, we haven't heard of any like mass shootings in a little while. You really like knock on wood here. And then you know, that was followed up in my head where like, well, school's been out for a few months right now. Like we've had summer. And so, you know, it's, it's that hard. Hopefully, you know, in an ideal world, we won't hear anything that this school year, but the reality is that we probably will. And you hope 
people that have like common sense ideas wherever on the spectrum they come to, th- those ideas are being put into place in as wide a, a spectrum as possible. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I also just thought her, her articles on Moms for Liberty in particular, and we talked a lot about this group, but where I thought they were very interesting because like I was saying to her and we continue this chat offline a little bit, I like having parents involved. I was people listening to this probably know I was a teacher for 10 years here in Boston. When parents are involved in their children's education, that is generally a good thing. You want parents to know what what's going on in their, their kids' schools and communicating with their teachers and potentially going to school board meetings. Like the active parents are great for it, for kids, for communities, for schools. But there's a fine line between being active and overactive. And they've had various terms over the years, like helicopter parents. But these aren't even really helicopter parents. These are parents who are very determined to shape their child's education to what they believe that it should be. And a lot of a lot of people agree with them. Certainly not everybody, though. And so I think what what's really interesting for me and where I'm torn is like, I like when education is a focal point in political conversations. I have long said that I think a lot of solutions to these like systemic issues in our country is through education. And so when it's a, a, a conversation, a debate at the highest levels of politics, that to me is a good thing. And so that's where I give Moms for Liberty a lot of credit. They've elevated this issue of education to a national level. Love it. But there are obviously <laughs> there are downsides to that when you're pushing an agenda. We talked about this a lot with like Dr. Madras, um, the Harvard professor at, at the at a higher education level, but now we're most for liberty is very much more focused on like the K through 12 level. So I, I just I think her reporting made me I was very ambivalent about like the reporting, not 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 the reporting, but like what she was reporting on. Yeah, I, I think it's it is a it's sort of a, a fascinating area because it like, like she alluded to, you know, how impactful it was in the governor's election in Virginia. And really, you know, it was a lot of what Ron DeSantis ran on in his reelection campaign for governor of Florida. And he won by a heck of a lot. So if you are, you know, either a Democrat or a self-prescribed liberal, like you can't, quite ignore this as just sort of some crazy talk in terms of like how it is a part of the sort of political movement. And, and of course, I think a lot of liberal women or women who vote Democrat often have a really hard time understanding how there are women in the Republican party. Um, And this is one of those areas that really attracts women in the Republican party. Um, and obviously, everybody wants a good education for their kids. But as you alluded to, the definition of good will vary very widely based on, um, yeah, based on how you grew up and sort of what you what it is that you believe. Um, and I think that that still is like it's it it's uh, well a like the title "Moms for Liberty" is is a bit of a misnomer because it's not as, as you alluded to, as Kira did in her reporting, that it's not freedom to learn whatever you want. It's, it's, we want the freedom to learn what we want you to learn um, and explicitly don't want you to learn other things that we'd rather you not learn or know about or be exposed to. Um, But that, that we always talk about that school 
we think an ideal school is teaching you like how to think, how to do, you know, have some of those journalistic principles to be objective, to try and analyze facts and data uh, and come to your own conclusions about different things. Um, but this movement is specific to kind of the conservative ideology in that they feel like uh, schools have gone too far in the other direction. And we talk about that that kind of pendulum. And I think she does a really good job of sort of alluding to what is going on sort of behind these doors. I do think it is interesting you know, how she's talked about the the kind of the evolution of this movement, that it was really, it started seemingly as moms who were interested in getting their kids back in school, maybe not as concerned about COVID and more concerned about um, in-person learning not happening and and the detriments and what are the effects of that. And I think that is, you know, has a, it's a universal question for parents who are thinking about how is, how is COVID uh, impacting my kids? But at the same time, where that movement has gone to, you know, someone like Donald Trump headlining your uh, your annual conference. And now is it less about education, more about how can we rile the base? And I think that that description of like the mini CPAC or CPAC 2.0, I think I think was very interesting. And I'm curious to see how it continues to unfold. Totally agree. Very curious. And I'm glad that Kira said that she's going to stay kind of on this beat and in this space, because I'll definitely be keeping an eye out for reporting from her and other people on this, because I do think, like she said, if you kind of eliminate the crazies, that this is a really good issue for Republicans right now. And I do think the messenger matters. Like I think DeSantis is originally was running because he was like, I can do this and I can be your warrior, your joyful warrior in a way that Trump just can't. That really hasn't proven to be the case thus far in his campaign. Who knows if he's able to turn around? But like Youngkin was able to do that. Youngkin, like in Virginia, which is a very purple and maybe even a, a, a bluish state at this point, wins as governor in a bit of an upset, be, rela- relying on this message. And he was a good messenger for it. So I do think it'll be fascinating because there are so few swing voters left, Ricky. Like we've talked about it, whether it's racially or education wise or socioeconomic wise, like you can pretty reliably break down what percentage are going to vote for the Republican or the Democrat. But suburban women are one of those swing voter bases. And they they swung one way in 2016. They swung back the other way in 2020. And they might swing the election either way in 2024. And that's I, running on this issue is speaking very much directly to those women. And it'll be interesting to see if either candidate for the major parties is able to do that successfully. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe my parting thought on this is that in so many ways, I think people who feel like they are in the center uh, of the of the political spectrum for whatever that means, obviously, it means you have sort of some views that you pick one party and some views that you pick another party. Um, And in many ways, you know, you kind of hold your nose to go to the ballot box at the during the general election because you're like, well, I uh, enough of this is what I want. Um, I think, yeah, I think with sort of the decline, um, in, in like sort of the relevance of COVID, how much, like how strong this is, because I think a lot of the sort of central appeal was the COVID policies in schools. Now that that's gone, you're left with a lot of the, 
are they gonna you know say the word transgender or gay and like so many parents are like whatever i don't you know i i hope that my kid learns this stuff or that like that's not enough of a reason to be attracted to the party anymore whereas before it was like very visceral will my kid have some place to go to school um and so that or even yeah, yeah even on those issues like it might be much more upsetting to you if it, if you you're hearing it in your kitchen in your living room versus like oh like maybe my kid's hearing it at school it just like if if <laughs> you can kind of tune out and be like I, i'm generally okay with their education versus like you're hearing this at home you're like whoa like what like, i don't know that i want my ex age kid to hear something like that and it just becomes a little more remote like you know as all of these issues tend to do as as they fade in in time yeah indeed well yeah another great Great conversation. We were very, uh, very thankful to have Kira join us and uh, I'll call it there. Yeah. Th- thank you to everybody that listens as always. Uh, if you are a first time listener and like what you heard, you can follow us uh, on Instagram at a underscore gentleman underscore disagreement. If you're listening to this, I'm sure you found us somehow, but you can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts and we appreciate your support. Till next time, bud. Yeah. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head and folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz need an early morning buzz learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than a ram Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten The values sometimes Being wrong Some mornings you away Some morning let your ego bruise But what I wouldn't give For the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head and folks of different minds because though we didn't share opinions we share an American ideal friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz there's hope behind the bluster cause though Main Street may not sell Full of folks just like you and me. When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics, it's time to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some days we'll leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find and chase the lion's head. Folks of different minds
sure Though we did not share Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz What I wouldn't give for The hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks are different minds Because though we did not Share opinions we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz